atmosphere is changing now For the Spirit of the Lord is here Oh, Holy Ghost, do what only you can do by massaging the atmosphere and the hearts so that we can best receive from you today in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Brett. I'm the pastor here, and it's good to see everyone, but especially those who are new to us. Glad you chose to make us your church for an hour this week. Thank you for coming. And let me be the latest to wish you a happy new year. We're going to, uh, we're going to figure out how to go through a series on our vision and values and our objectives as a church, our mission. And um, today we're going to talk about encountering Christ. Now, we've got three objectives that we hope everybody seizes and experiences when they're with us. One, a real encounter with Jesus. Two, an experience with community. And three, the passion to extend the kingdom beyond where they are. These are objectives we hope everybody carries with them on the regular. And not just an encounter with Christ once whereby they get born again, but an encounter with Christ daily. And today we're going to talk about what it means to encounter Christ. Turn with me over to the book of Luke, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. The title of the message is Encounter Christ, a Gentile's Experience. A Gentile's Experience. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him, to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, he earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant him this request, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, am, for I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Verse 10. And when those who had sent returned to the house, those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Lord, help us as we study. Here we have three things that I'd like to concentrate on. One, a centurion in need. Two, a course-corrected request. And three, commended faith. The background is that Jesus is from the region where the centurion lives. This is the region of Galilee. And Jesus has just finished his inaugural address for ministry. So the, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that he ever preached, has um, kind, of, kind of set the tone for his entire way of doing things. And it was 
it was endemic to him because he was going to be counterintuitive to everything humanity thought needed to be done a certain way. But it made people's heads spin who had never heard this kind of approach to life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm going to be comforted when I, when I mourn, but, but, but is there a way that I don't have to go through that? I'd be more blessed, I think, if I didn't have to do that. He redefined blessing. And he talked about how important it was for us to have the heart of God that you, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. He was setting the tone differently than everybody hoped he would because as the Messiah, they thought he was just going to go and tell Herod, get off the throne, who was the ruler of the people of Israel at the time. But he was just the puppet of the Roman Empire who had their authority there in Judea, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And he thought he was going to unsee both of these guys, meaning the, the people did. And as a result, set up a throne that would have no end to the kingdom of which he ruled and whose increase would never stop. And you'd have unparalleled peace and prosperity. That's what everybody thought this Messiah was supposed to do. And they thought Jesus was the Messiah. But he came talking about how Israel needed to change, not what needed to change for Israel. And though we would love for our circumstances to change, would we not? God most often tries to get us to change. He comes counterintuitively to everything that you think he needs to do and says, yeah, the problem's you. Yeah, I know, the, I know those issues are really hard. It's difficult, I get it, but the problem's you. If I can get you to be better, that won't matter near as much. And when it changes, you'll know how to respond best to the prosperity that comes your way. The issue's you. And so the Sermon on the Mount was all about Israel being different. And he comes to this moment, and he's in the area, and uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, really don't know what to do with Jesus. They, 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 they've already had the moment where he went to the synagogue one day, and he took the scroll, and he turned to the passage in Isaiah, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Everybody was saying, oh, that's a great passage. And then he says this, which is not in the passage. And in your hearing today, the scripture is fulfilled. At which time, everybody who heard him say that said, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't this Mary's boy? Which meant, yeah, you remember Mary is the one that had that thing with Joseph and the baby and the, we're not quite sure where he came from. And in order for him to be legit, he's got to be legitimate and we don't think he is. So isn't this Mary's boy? And at that, they went to throw him off a cliff. How about that for your first little sermon in church? They went to throw him off a cliff. Because they were so mad at him. So although Jesus hadn't been ministering a long time, he had ministered long enough to make some of the religious leaders a little skeptical of his motives and to offend them to such a degree that they would want to harm him. Now, we don't know if these religious leaders happen to be in that same camp, but we do know this, that it's the same region. We're talking about Sterling, Herndon, Chantilly, that kind of region. 
And for the most part, all the religious leaders spoke with one another and understood one another. And here the centurion lives. And being the centurion in this region, he has governmental authority from Rome. Here we have a beautiful juxtaposition of what God wants to do for this slave who happens to be sick and what he wants to do through the Hebrew or Jewish leaders. The centurion comes to, to, to the Hebrew leaders. Now he's built their synagogue and he loves the nation. We don't know whether he's converted, but at least he has affinity moving toward covenantal people. And, and he comes to them and says, listen, I got this slave that's sick. Could you please go get this Jesus? I've heard about him. And see if he'll come and heal my, my slave. And, and the leaders are sitting there thinking, uh, sure. Yeah, we'd be happy to do that. That'd be great. And then they go away and talk, wait a minute now. If we go get Jesus and he does this, and that's going to put the people more in line with Jesus, and it's just going to give him an opportunity to prove that he says he is who he is. But if we don't do it, then the centurion is not going to be happy with us, and he represents Rome, and he might just tear down the synagogue he built with his own money and be mad at us. How do we, sometimes God will paint you in a corner, whereby the best thing he's trying to do is get you to obey. I know you feel like there's no way out. There's always a way out. It's usually in, in the middle of his will. Do the highest and best, and though it might cost you, it will benefit you later. These religious leaders were in a quandary. How do we fix this? We're, we're caught between a rock and a hard place here. But let me tell you what God was doing. He was setting the stage so that the place at which Jesus did most of his ministry, which is in Galilee, though we have some of the most famous moments in Jerusalem, he was only in Jerusalem for the most part for the feasts, which happened three times a year. And they were, were a week apiece. Now, he may stay longer, but generally he was only required to stay for a week. But he lived in the region of Galilee. Indeed, Capernaum was his adult home, not Nazareth. He was born in Nazareth, excuse me, he retreated to Nazareth after he came out of Egypt. He was born in Bethlehem, but he moved to Capernaum later. And since this was his home region and folks didn't like him and tried to throw him off a cliff the first time he uttered some things from the word of God, here we now have the Lord saying, you know, you need some protection. And so I'm, gonna, I'm going to allow the centurion to kind of gravitate towards you so that if anybody were to harm you, they got to go through him. Do you know how many times, now we don't have this said in scripture, what I just said, but this was the result of Jesus healing the centurion slave. That if anybody wanted to harm this guy, they probably had to go through the centurion and Rome's authority to do it. And so the Lord was setting up protection in the area where Jesus lived longest and most. Do you know how many times God has protected you and you don't even know it? setting up stuff for you regularly so that you did not have to fall into that ditch, didn't drive off a cliff, that bus did not hit you, that disease did not come upon you. Do you know how many times and the circumstances he has had to put in place just to keep you breathing? God is always trying to help you. Always. And so here come the, the men. 
realizing they can only do what they're asked to do. And Jesus says, I'll come. I'll come and, come and heal him. And as Jesus is on the way, the centurion changes his request. He sends another group of servants. And he says, stop, stop. You don't have to come any further. I'm really not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, what we see here is a degree of humility. That isn't very often exemplified even among godly folk. He realizes who he's not. Jesus was primarily sent to the Jews. That doesn't mean application for his redemptive benefit doesn't come to us who are Gentile. But he was primarily sent to the Jews for his earthly ministry. Why? Because they could be the springboard having the promises and the law and the prophets They could be the springboard that could best accentuate his ministry and bring it on to the next generation to then allow the the disciples to reach us. But he needed a base. And so he came to Israel in order to solidify that base that could then reach out to people like us. Now, I realize that most of us consider Christianity a a religion that is not not, uh, akin to Jewish folk, but it started with Jewish folk. We are inheritors of what they began. But they did it so well to get it to us, it now seems like it was for us in the beginning. It wasn't. They gave it to us. And for that, I am very grateful. But when it came to the original intent of Jesus' ministry, while he was on the planet, his job was to minister to Jews and then allow those Jews to take whatever to the remotest parts of the earth. That is us. And so this Gentile, this Roman, realized, I'm not a part of this thing. That man is for y'all. And I shouldn't use my Roman authority to try to command somebody in my region to come to my house when he's really from God. And Roman authority doesn't, it might be strong, but it doesn't apply there. It doesn't override God's authority. And so he realizes what he's done and he backs off. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, before I get to what he says next, I want you to understand that this encounter happens to be, in the Gospels, the closest kind of of the encounters, closer to the kind of encounters that we experience on a regular basis with God. Why? Because his Roman centurion never bodily saw Jesus. His eyes never beheld him. He never touched him. He only related to him by request. Does that sound like anybody in the room? I mean, maybe maybe you are one of those rare believers who has this unusual relationship with God where you and Jesus have lunch every Tuesday. I mean, he can make special appearances with people. He is God. He can do what he wants to do. He's primarily seated at the right hand of the Father. That is his formal spot. But he can get up anytime he wants and go and appear to anybody he wishes. He doesn't do that with me. I've seen him once. I have. But it was like for seven seconds. He didn't say much and he left. But what he said, I got. I didn't forget it. It was a moment in my life. It is defined how I position myself in this city. But when it comes to regular appearances with God, most of us don't get those. And so we are dependent upon what we cannot see and the faith required to believe that his word is just as legitimate to us as if he were sitting next to you. And how do we get that word? What is the way by which we encounter him most regularly? How has he prescribed it? Read your Bible 
every day. You need to encounter Jesus, encounter him through his word. That's how this centurion did. And he didn't even know him as well as you. He didn't understand him as well as you. He didn't understand his purpose as well as you. All he knew is he had power. And that power could benefit me. And he realized, I don't even need you to come under my roof. I don't need to see you. Now, as the centurion was course correcting his request, it says that Jesus was close to the house. So he was right here at Brookfield and Daly. He's right here at the corner, right at the corner. He says, you can stop. I don't need you to walk in here. I'm not worthy because I'm a Gentile and I'm not going to use my Roman authority to try to subvert that which you initially came to do and minister to to the Jewish people. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed because I understand something about authority. Now, he was able to use his own circumstances to leverage a principle that even the Jewish people hadn't gotten. I'm a man under authority. I have people under authority with me. I tell him to go, he goes. I tell him to come, he comes. I tell him to do this, he does that. In fact, I don't even have to be in the presence. All I have to do is write something on a piece of paper and send it to him. All I have to do is write something on a piece of paper and send it to him. Okay, I got about 20% of you. There's a thing called the Bible. With some words on a piece of paper that God has sent to you. And somehow or another, we actually believe that it would be better for us if we actually had the body of Jesus in our midst. And in doing so, believing that way, we disrespect his word. Can you, can, can you believe how angry a superior would be? If you got a note from your, your employer that asked you to do something and you said this, I ain't going to do it till you show up. <laughs> I will not do it till you show up and talk to me personally. All of us know we'd be fired. We'd be fired. We'd be fired. You, you, you don't want an email. You, you don't want to post it. You, you want me per- We think we would be more blessed if it happened personally because we are so dependent on our natural senses to tell us what reality really is. And it is part of reality, but it is not all reality. There is a faith by which we must walk, and we are blessed if we do so. Jesus appears in the upper room on the day of of his resurrection. In this upper room where the disciples were, we think it's probably the same upper room where they got filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And they had the doors locked because they were afraid that the Jews were going to come and get them and crucify them just like they did Christ. And so they're there afraid for their lives. And Jesus just walks through the walls. There's something about his resurrected body that, that, that corporal, corporeal reality like we have just, is, it, 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 it's, it's different. It can pass through all matter. And he appears, and they're scared because they believe he's a ghost. And then he, he basically says in our vernacular, chill, which is peace be still. <laughs> chill, it's just me. It's just me. And, and then he showed him his hands and his side. And they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They were so happy they didn't know what to say. You're alive. Oh! Now, the only guy who was not there was Thomas. 
Thomas comes back later. He hears testimony from everybody else who was there. The women, the other ten disciples, because Judas had figured out something else to do. (laughs) The other ten disciples. And he hears testimony. Jesus showed up. Thomas says this. I ain't going to believe it till I see. In fact, I need proof of the nail prints in his hands and the spear in his side. Until I can put my hand there, I ain't going to believe it. You're not going to believe at least 12 people. Mary, his mother, the other Mary, and 10 other You're not going to, all of them, all of them were deluded. Every one of them. I won't believe it until I see it with my eyes. Next day, Thomas is there. Jesus appears in the room, same way. And then he says, first thing he says, hey, Tom, come here. Uh, See my prince? Why don't you put your hand right here? Which means Jesus listens to all your stupid comments. He hears everything you say, even though you're not praying, he's still listening. Are you listening to me? He's listening. And, and if you want Jesus to recall stuff, you, you want to make sure he's recalling good stuff you say. That had to be super convicting for, for, for Thomas because he realized, oh my goodness, he heard my cynicism. He knew my doubt. And he said, Be not unbelieving, but believe. Thomas fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Those are beautiful words. That's the way to repent. That's the way to repent. He said, you believe because you saw. But let me tell you something, boy. You missed out on something yesterday. Because blessed is he who believes and does not see. There's a blessing that you cannot see him. But believe anyway. This centurion never met him. Probably didn't read an Old Testament. But knew something that allowed him the privilege of expressing faith in his word. You just say it and it'll happen where I am. Just say it. I believe that'll work. (laughs) Jesus says this. First of all, he commends his faith. He said, I haven't found such great faith in all the church, in all of Israel. And when he said it, he said it to the church. Says he turned around and looked at the crowd that was following him. Said, how come y'all don't believe like that? What's wrong with you people? You have Moses, you have Abraham, you you, you got all these prophets, you got Isaiah, you got Jerry. Why don't you believe like this guy who's got nothing? That's what he said. I haven't found the faith where I should find it in the people with whom I should find it, but I found it with him. He marveled. The only other place where it says he marveled, now the, it says it in, a, uh, in, in English with a different word. It says astonished in my version of the Bible, but it's the same Greek word. It said he was back home and he couldn't do many, many miracles because people contextualized him in Mary's boy. Their doubt and unbelief didn't allow him to do what he would normally do to help people. And it says he marveled or was astonished at their unbelief. Pick it. Which one do you want him to marvel at in your life? Your unbelief or your belief? There's no middle ground, by the way. Doesn't exist. Either you believe or you don't. 
Either you have faith or you have fear. Either you are trusting in him or you are not. And we find out how much we trust when there are opportunities not to trust. When your teenager doesn't seem to be doing the right thing and all of a sudden you hit the panic button and now you're talking to them in ways that are not inspired by faith but by frustration and fear. You're not like the prodigal dad. The prodigal son had a dad who was dad of the prodigal. I don't want to insult your intelligence. I just want to make sure you're getting my point. He had a son. And his son went out and did what he wanted to do. Came to his dad and said, give me my inheritance now. I want to go out and do what I want to do. Daddy said, okay. But we know the dad was looking for this boy to come back every day. The story doesn't say it, but it says this. That when the boy found out that he was stupid. <laughs> Sometimes you have to find out that you're stupid. Nobody can tell you. You just got to find out you're stupid. You got to find it out. So he's sitting there with the pigs in their sty longing to eat what they were eating but could not. He said, what am I? I'm an idiot. My servants eat better than, these, than I'm eating. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to start with this. Daddy, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. That's what I'm going to say, because this is dumb. <laughs> so he starts on his way back home, and the story says this in Luke 15. And while he was a long way off, what was daddy doing every day? When's my boy coming home? I know the covenant. I know the prayers I prayed. I know we dedicated that kid to God. I know he's out there on his own, but I got faith because I know my God has spoken. I know what he says about covenant children. I know what he says about his promises. When's he coming home? He was looking on the horizon every day of his life. And one day, he saw this figure walking down the road. And he had a certain gait that he recognized. That's a fuller. That's a fuller. I know that's a fuller. And it says he ran to meet him. When your child's gone nuts, you shouldn't. You ought to believe every day that his word is true. His word has power. His word changes things. This centurion knew. Your word can change my servant's reality. I'm going to believe in it. You want to encounter Christ? Encounter him through his promises, his word, what he has already said. And it's amazing how the circumstances of your life will begin to bend. They may not change, but they'll bend around your character because you're different and you approach them differently. And as you become more like him, then the things that you say start sounding like him. When you, when you begin to believe what he said about you and you conform to his will, then the scriptures which Jesus said can become those which you can hold on to. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if you aren't conformed to his will, you can ask all day long in his, you can slap the name of Jesus on any prayer you want. It ain't coming to pass because you aren't conformed to his will. What it means to ask in his name, it doesn't mean that you pray what you want, put the name of Jesus at the end of it in Jesus' name, and then all of a sudden you get it. No, no, no. It's not formulaic. This is not just 
say the right thing and all of a sudden the door opens? No magic word, no incantation. This is relationship. And what it means to be in his name means you are under the authority of his will. When an ambassador goes to another country, he goes in the name of the United States of America. And in that name, he speaks. And when he speaks, who backs it up? Except the United States of America. Now, if he chooses to speak on his own initiative, we ain't backing it up. If you choose to speak on your own initiative, don't think the kingdom has to help you. He's not going to endorse that. There's no cosign coming. But if you speak on behalf of his will, knowing that, that what he wants is what you want, then whatever you say under the authority of his will comes to pass. Cynthia and I lived in a rental home some, I don't know, bunch of years ago. And this, this rental home had an had a apple tree in the backyard. And it was really kind of scrawny. It, it wasn't full grown. It was maybe about 12 feet. You could tell it had been planted recently and we just moved in. And um, it blossomed in the spring. And, and then it, it, there was obviously another apple tree close by that I couldn't see because you can't pollinate it. It can't pollinate itself. So it has to be cross-pollination. And all of a sudden, there were blossoms all over this thing. And, and I knew that, that then apples were coming. And sure enough, they were probably on this little 12-foot tree, maybe... 60, 70 apples. I thought this is going to be great. But on this one branch, there were 40. 40. And it was, it, was, it was the tallest branch, and it was the thickest branch. But it was only about three quarters of an inch in diameter. Only about that thick. And as, as the apples appeared on it, it went like this. Every, every week, it bent a little bit more and built a little bit more because the apples got bigger. And I said, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to get a sermon out of this. <laughs> I said, this, this branch ain't going to make it. It's going to break under the weight. No way it's going to make it. Not with 40 apples, just too, too much. It bent all the way till the tip of it was on the ground, but it did not break. Why? Because that branch communicated with the root and said, I'm bearing fruit. I've got more fruit on my branch than any other branch in the tree. You better give me some stuff through that xylem and flow so I can get thicker. And by the end of the summer, the branch was an inch and a half thick. And not, not one stressful moment caused it to break. It allowed, the apples got big and the branch never broke. It stood, it, the tip of it was on the ground, but it never broke. See, when, when you start doing stuff in his name and bearing fruit, you start asking for the right stuff. And the right stuff is I want to support that which is in my life that brings you glory. So please, root system, Jesus, send me up all the nutrients necessary so that I can grow into what I need to be to bear the fruit you want me to have. That's praying in his name. And when you pray according to that, oh, all he wants to do is give you everything you need to accomplish his will on the planet. Just say the word. Just say the word. That's all I need. You just say the word. Jesus said, I haven't found any, any faith like this in my whole nation. And he does what the man requested, which is phenomenal. And it's important that we recognize how important 
this word is to our lives. The Bible says it is living. In Hebrews 4, it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. If you want to encounter Christ, encounter him through his word because it is alive. You have to know his promises. You've got to get in here and read them. You have to meditate on them. You can't just memorize them. You've got to meditate on them, which means you make them your own. When I was real young in ministry, I was 22, 23, 24, I had this mindset that if I went ahead and believed that the worst was going to happen, I'd never be disappointed. I know that's foreign to everybody in this room. But that's the way I thought. I'll never be disappointed if I believe the worst is going to happen. And so I lived my life that way. And, 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 and I was rarely disappointed, but I was never fulfilled. And then I began to listen to some people who talked like I'm talking today. They said, you need to have faith, not fear. You don't need to expect that bad things are going to happen. You need to expect that God is for you and that he has a hope and a future and he's going to bless you, not curse you. And that you somehow need to get away from the idea of being less cursed is good. As long as you're not really bad cursed, it's okay. And so I began to look at the scriptures differently. And I saw these promises that he had for me. And the authority that he had given me in his word. And I began to meditate on him and believe that somehow or another he had good things for me. I didn't say that my life was going to be easy. But he had good things for me. And that blessing... And prosperity and abundance were supposed to be mine. I did not say that I would be rich. I said I'd be blessed. And remember, Jesus said, well, blessing, blessed if, if you mourn. Blessing doesn't mean that you are somehow seven, six-figure bank account. Blessing can be in the midst of difficulty. You can find God's will and his purpose and his presence. Even if it's really hard, I need, to, I need the kind of abundance that lives in that arena. Lord, help me to be like that. And I began to, 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 to let those scriptures wash over my soul and fix my mind. Now, I'm looking at life as if I'm supposed to, to walk through favor every time I walk through a door. It's supposed to be a wonderful opportunity for me. I'm not always hedging. I'm looking for a blessing. And if it doesn't happen, I say to myself this, well, it's going to happen. It's just not happening like I thought. Even when I'm not feeling well, I don't, I, I, I say things, people ask me, how you feel when you're not feeling well? How you feel? They expect to say, oh, I've got a runny nose and cold. I'm overcoming. Why? Because I know my God has made provision in scripture for me to be healed. Now, I know some people that will just, you ask them how they're feeling and they're not feeling well, they say, I'm healed. Now, I, I, I know what you mean. I got you. I'm standing with you in that. But you know that stuff's coming out of your nose, right? <laughs> you, you know, you know, you know, yeah. You don't want to ignore the circumstance. You just want to apply the right remedy to it from Scripture. It's important that we hold on to these promises and love this word and believe that it is the remedy to our life. You want to encounter Christ? Encounter his word. Say the word, Jesus, to me. Still my soul. Let not fear and unbelief rule my life. Help me to remember everything that you have already done for me so that I can build my faith on the basis of what you have done, not what you need to do now. 
And how many things has God done for you? How many times has he delivered you? How many times has he, been, has he shown himself faithful to you? Countless. Yet the, the, the disciples couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And that's, that's just men, not, not women and children. And he had done it with a few loaves and a few fish. And all day long, he had been breaking. Even when there's a miracle, you got to work. Took those fish and those loaves, just started breaking. And how long do you have to break for 5,000? Men. 15,000? Women and children? How long do you? All day. And earlier in the day, he had just gotten word that his buddy, his relative, John the Baptist, had died at the hands of Herod. Head cut off. He needed a moment. He needed a moment, but he couldn't get it because people were saying, I'm hungry. I beg you, concern yourself with God's needs before your own. Very few people did in Jesus' day. Hardly anybody asked, how you doing? His buddy just died. But the 5,000 said, can I get some more food? Can I get another two-piece, please? Fed him all day long. Then he told the disciples, go to the other side. Why? Because finally he would have a moment where he could pray. And he sat down in the presence of God and did whatever he normally does. Got his soul straight. The disciples had gone in the boat, though. He said, go to the other side of the lake. Now, the lake of Gisenaret or Galilee is about 10 miles in diameter. It's a big lake. You can't see the other side. It's not the kind of lakes like we have here. It looks like a sea. That's why they call it the Sea of Galilee. So if you know anything about math, that means that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 miles to walk halfway around. It's a long way. And Jesus was supposed to meet them on the other side. But it would be a long time. I mean, 20 miles, you, all night walking, and he's, just, he's tired. So he decided that evening, I'll take a shortcut. That's the only reason he walked on the sea. It wasn't to show off. He just needed to get there in a hurry. And he didn't want to walk all the way around. Took a shortcut. The disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was contrary. And they were just working as best they knew how. And then they see Jesus walking past them. <laughs> they think it's a ghost. <laughs> they say, hey, it's me. It's just me. And they're thinking, Wow. I'm over here working too hard. Can you let me walk on the water? That's what Peter said. I want to walk like you walking. I'm straining over here. I can't make any headway because the winds are just too strong. It's amazing when you walk with Jesus, he knows how to cut through the wind. I'm, I'm just, it, there's a whole other sermon in that. Because the same wind that was facing the disciples was facing Jesus, yet he was walking through it real clear. Let me walk with you. Jesus says, come on, Pete. Pete gets out of the water. Woo! Me and Jesus, the only people in the history of humanity will walk on water. I mean, he was building his, his testimony and, and getting the title for his book. <laughs> it was going to be amazing. It was amazing. And all of a sudden, he didn't know that the, the, the book would have this, this testimony in it. This huge wave comes. Now, it's big enough to make Peter scared. So we're not talking about five feet. We're talking about maybe 20. And all of a sudden, fear hits him. He sinks. Peter 
And Jesus picks Peter up, puts him back in the boat, looks at him and says, now where'd your faith go? Where'd your faith go? They get to the other side. Jesus says, beware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have leaven. And that leaven will mess up your life, meaning their infection will get in yours if you're not careful. And then they begin to dialogue with one another saying, whose day was it to, to, to get the bread? I, I, it wasn't my day. John, it was your day. No, I got it last week. Somebody missed out on the bread. He said, beware of the Pharisees' leaven and stuff. Jesus said, are you serious? Are you serious? Do you think if I was hungry, I'd ask you for bread? Didn't you just see what I did with the 5,000? Quote, did you not gain anything from when I fed them? That was just yesterday. One of the greatest miracles in all of human history. And they logged it simply as an event, not something upon which they could build. God has done so many things for you. Don't make him prove himself on the next miracle. Remember what he has already done so that your faith in his word can build in your life rather than when the next circumstance comes, all of a sudden you are panicking. Well, what did he do yesterday? That's why you got to get in this word every day of your life so that you can see the other part of reality that is really more real than the real you're seeing, the real you're experiencing. His word and his promises are immovable. Everything else is subject to change. You want to encounter Christ, be like the centurion. Tell me what to do. Just speak. Your word defines my life. I don't need to relate to you on my eyes, with my hands. I can relate to you just on your 